Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This is episode 85 of the Swallier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Luis Raquelme. Luis is currently the director for the Center for Swallowing and Speech Pathology at New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist Hospital and associate professor of speech language pathology at New York Medical College. He completed his master's degree at Columbia University and PhD at the Graduate Center of City University of New York. Dr. Raquel Meyers authored articles on dysphagia, multiculturalism, and quality improvement. His current research includes changes in swallow physiology in persons with dementia and swallow differences in the presence of pills. Luis has served on several local and national boards and committees, including chair of American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders, chair of the New York State Board for Speech-Language Pathology and Audiology, past president of the New York State Speech-Language Hearing Association, and several others. He currently serves as a member of the Board of Directors of the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative. He has presented both locally and internationally. So, hope you guys love this interview with Luis. He's just wonderful. I love talking to him. But more importantly, go vote. So, this is last week I uh, spoke with Craig Coleman. He is running for Vice President of Planning, and Luis here, Dr. Raquel May, is running for President of ASHA. So ASHA elections are going on now. I believe they go through the end of May. So you've got quite some time to get to know the candidates and to vote. I don't have the exact link, but I know I just Googled ASHA elections, and it brought me up, and there was a little button that said vote now. So if you're wondering how you vote, just Google ASHA elections, and there'll be a button that pops up in your face that says vote now. So I hope everybody votes. This is super important. I love being able to get our voice heard. And, you know, I'll be honest, I kind of was a little bit, I don't want to say bitter with ASHA, but like just not feeling like they were listening to us or hearing us. And and lately I've been super encouraged and I really feel like we are ASHA and that us clinicians, us researchers, we all together are working collectively for the greater good of our profession. And we are ASHA. It's it's not us versus them. It's all of us. So I hope you guys vote. I hope you write letters to who you need to write letters to, talk to who you need to talk to. I've made a lot of headway with talking to people that I want to talk to about issues that matter to me a lot. And I felt really encouraged and felt like I was actually listened to. And I think that's really what we all want. So hope you guys go vote and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Luis. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I am having a great time, having more fun than I thought with now that elections are on. <laughs> well, I must, I'm, I'm ecstatic that you chose to join us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was thinking in this morning, you know, you have your greatest thoughts in the shower, but I was thinking like, how cool is it that, you know, you are running for ASHA president and I know you, I've had a drink in a bar with you before, you know, you're, you're one of us. And I think that's, what's so cool about this. And that a lot of us identify, you know, with you and with some of the other candidates because you are us. So that's cool. Well, thank you. And thanks for the invitation. This is. Yeah, of course. Of course. So tell people a little bit about yourself if they don't know who you are. So let's see. So I, first of all, I'll, I'll say that my heart is definitely embedded in being a clinician and I don't want to stop seeing patients. And so I've been very fortunate and still see patients on a regular basis. I am very lucky to be able to do the things that really mean a lot to me. As you know, I do specialize in the assessment and treatment of swallowing disorders and have all my life. About seven years ago, I completed this crazy journey of a PhD. So for many years, I was a master's level clinician. Honestly, I say master's level clinician just to distinguish it, but I'm still just as great a clinician as I was before. And that's always what I wanted to impart to the young generation. So my team at the hospital, there are 12 of us at New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist. 
And the focus is on providing the best care possible for uh, folks with speech, language, and swallowing disorders, adults and children. And our team is heavily focused on searching the evidence. You know, we're presenting, we're out there sharing what we do. And I'm lucky to also be a full-time faculty member at New York Medical College, where I work with a great uh, academic team and where our focus is on preparing the best students out there. And then I've been able to collaborate with some really great colleagues that are able to do full-time research. I can engage in it full-time because, of course, running a department, seeing patients, teaching, but I've been able to have some fun doing that. And so my collaborations with several colleagues have generated some fun papers in swallowing and then also my lifelong interest in cultural sensitivity and the fact that we all are a part of many cultures, so we should all be treating each other with respect and maintaining our dignity. So that's a little yes. bit about me. All right. I love it. So let's dive into this. So what's interesting is I, I originally wanted you to come onto the podcast to talk about IDSI, which we're rolling out soon, and you've been a huge part of that. But then this whole election thing exploded. So maybe someday we'll talk about it. But today we're here to talk about the election. So Louise, you are running for ASHA president. So tell us why. Why did you decide you want to do that? So the first reaction is, wow, <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> but I'll tell you why. The reason really is, and, and, I, and you know, I'm carrying on my campaign on this whole representation thing. And, uh, you know, I'm really lucky that, that I'm, I'm a clinician, I'm a researcher, I'm a university faculty member, you know, I, I'm bilingual, I'm a person of color, you know, I'm gay, there, I mean, there's just all this stuff. And I'm a male in our profession, which is another minority. And, and just, especially over the past few years, I'm hearing from folks of all ages feeling disenfranchised with ASHA, feeling like... Asha doesn't listen to us or Asha doesn't know what's affecting us. And there, there are some realities to that. There, there are some limitations in the volunteer opportunities within Asha. Um, and I think we need to make some changes uh, so that more people can be involved. And so I, I've never been the type of person that likes to sit back and complain. I've always felt that I need to be a part of the solution. And that kind of prompted me to say, okay, maybe it's time to do this. I'm very happy with what I'm doing, with the patients I see, the research I'm doing, the students I'm training. I, I work with some fantastic people and I could just stay in this comfortable little position. So why go crazy being president of ASHA? But you know, I love the, I love these professions. I, I think what we do is incredible and we change people's lives. And so how do we get young folks, young folks like you, Teresa, right? Yes. Professionals that are out there doing good work and, and really need and deserve the recognition. And so we need to foster that because I'm on my way out, right? But no, well, yeah, some say I will never <laughs> retire, but, but we need to, we, we need to do more of that. And then the learning from each other, you know? not one person knows everything. And so we right. need to be able to listen and learn from each other um, and understand that people have different opinions and perspectives. And so I, I'm hoping that's what I'm bringing to these elections and to the office of president, which is representing folks and opening the doors so that people have a voice and we can engage in some good problem solving. Excellent. I love it. And I think what's so appealing about you is, as you said, you're here to represent everybody. You are a clinician. You are a researcher. You are on faculty. I think I think that's what like stings for most of us is that it seems like there's just this group of researchers, PhDs that are making all these policies and guidelines, and then they trickle down to us and nobody ever consulted a clinician. You know, and that's that's what's happened to me in a few cases that I've gone to ASHA about things. That's what's happened to others of our colleagues. And that's, like you said, kind of why we feel disenfranchised, because it's like, no, no, clinician, sit down. We're making these decisions without you. Right. And we're the ones that are in it every day. So I know that's, you know, where most of our frustration comes from is that I'm not one to sit back and complain about things either. I want to be involved in the problem. I want to be involved in the solution. And sometimes we just aren't asked to sit at the table. 
and it'd be nice to have a seat at the table. That's, <laughs> so. that's, that's true. So I've got I've got two quick examples I'd, I'd love to share because people might say, oh, he just came up with that now and uh, yeah. now he wants to represent <laughs> the world. But, you know, I have a long history of that. I've been doing I've been in the field now for 32 years. And, you know, back in the early 90s, for example, I felt like, and I always in grad school, I hated when people would say, oh, well, you're a male and you're bilingual, you've got it made. And I always felt like, no, I want to be known because I'm a good speech language pathologist, not because I'm bilingual, not because I'm a male. Um, those things happened. I didn't choose them. I chose to be a speech language pathologist and I choose to be a good one. So, so that always bothered me, but I didn't feel represented. You know, I, I, I started going to conventions. I started to, to try to participate more. And, and some of the connections weren't happening. And I realized that, that the only group of people of color that had representation was the National Black Association for Speech-Language Hearing, which is a great organization. And thanks to their help and their advice, my friend and colleague, Alex Hines and Combs, and I uh, co-founded the Hispanic Caucus. And that started back in the early 90s. And we started then making some headways. Asha started listening and really incorporating more of the multiculturalism aspects that, that are so needed because look at our patient population. This yes. country is almost 40% people of color right now. So I think that's, that's quite relevant. And my message there being that, you know, again, we all represent many different cultures, as I, as I said before. And so we need to be sensitive to that. We can't just look at somebody and assume that we know about them because you have long hair or because you're blonde or because you have short hair, whatever. So that involved a lot of listening and being able to develop the Hispanic Caucus and start a steering committee and do all that. So that was a great process. And that really really helped me jump in um, after having done some stuff at the state level. Most recently, again, part of listening, you know how, I, I guess, well, you don't know this because you're young, but you know, as we get older, we, we form opinions of things, right? So I, although I don't work in the area of pediatric dysphagia, I was increasingly becoming frustrated, especially from hearing from colleagues that, that work in the area and feeding and swallowing with children, how, you know, our colleagues in early intervention, they weren't doing a good job. They're not doing any of the feeding work. You know, these, these babies make it out of the NICU. They go home. They're not making progress. And I thought, well, that's terrible. So once a year, I lecture in the bilingual institute at Columbia University that Dr. Kate Crowley runs. And I voiced that. And it turns out a large part of the students in that cohort were folks practicing in early intervention. And during a break, they kind of nicely put me in my place and said, listen, we have access to the literature. We go to conferences, but we don't get the hands on. We are not going to put our license and certification in jeopardy and, and do something that is detrimental to one of these medically fragile children. And I totally saw the light. And that next week I came and I spoke with my chair here at New York Medical College. And I said, I, I think we need to do something about this. I put together an advisory group of some expert clinicians in pediatric feeding and swallowing. Again, that's not my area. And yet I'm running the program but I'm definitely just the administrator. They're teaching the courses, they're doing the whole thing, and it includes a practicum. And it's a postmaster certificate that now in September launches online because we, oh, were, getting, we were getting emails from yeah. all over the country. We actually have somebody enrolled now that will be flying in from Italy for the practicum. Fantastic. So yeah, so that's that's just proof that, yeah, listening to make sure we move the agenda forward. The, these These kids need to start feeding, eating better, and we need to know what we're doing. Or again, we're just going to lose it and really not let somebody else come in and do it for us, which is not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a mom of a toddler with feeding and swallowing issues, my heart goes out to you. So thank you. But <laughs> I think, you know, most importantly, I think there, that happens a lot in our field is that these, some of these specialties, we just don't feel comfortable enough to treat. And I think it's just fantastic that you were able to create that program to meet that need. So you know, let me ask you, do you think there's a possibility of doing that for other areas that we have? I mean, even just adult swallowing, you know, I mean, that's right. kind of one of the biggest issues is that we have SLPs going out, treating these acutely ill patients, and they had no 
experience, as you said. It's just like, here's a job, here's patients, you have your C's, go to work. Right. And and of course, we know that's not enough. Right, right. So and and so board certification came up, right? right? As right. as as a great concept for for specialists. And Teresa, you're board certified and swallowed yeah. well, right? I, I chaired that that board for three years and I served on on the executive board for um, some years before that. But that's not the only answer, right? Yeah. Because there are there are almost 40,000 speech language pathologists working in the area of dysphagia. Interestingly, only about almost 12,000 are affiliates of SIG-13, our Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders Special Interest Group. That's a little scary because I wonder where is everybody else getting the updated information on dysphagia? And then, of course, we have even less, right? We're under 400 board certified specialists. Now, there are some really good clinicians that are practicing in dysphagia and trying to stay up to date, but are also interested in other areas. And so they're not comfortable getting their board certification in swallowing. I actually was not a proponent of board certification when it first started. I didn't get board certified until 2009. And that was more because of the focus on patient safety. And I felt, you know, the same way that I can search for a board-certified dermatologist, I should be able to search for a board-certified specialist in swallowing. Yeah. And that got me into that mode. But I'm, I'm concerned at a few levels about what's happening with dysphagia. And, 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 I, and I live it every day. We, we do video fluoroscopies for outside colleagues at the hospital. And, and, and we see, we also hear the stories of people going to rehab on on peg tubes, and you know, a month later, we're doing their video fluoroscopy, and we say, "Why did you mm-hmm. get a peg tube? Right? Yeah, you weren't that bad." And I think you've talked about that too. That's yep, a day in the life. Exactly. So how frustrating, and and you know, and food is so important. Being able to eat and and socialize and enjoy. I mean, anyway, don't get me started on that. Yes. But, yeah. but back to what we're really focusing on, which is, so how do we get that good education out there? I think, and we have several colleagues, as you know, and you've interviewed many of them doing some great jobs and some really what I call down to earth clinician driven workshops. Fantastic work. Yeah. How do we make things more accessible though? Not everybody can drive, you know, and spend a day or two at a conference. We have some of these online programs now how do we make that accessible? I've, I've been lucky to be a part of one of the first uh, webinar series that ASHA put together. Uh, the first one was a few years ago, and then it was repeated and updated last year, I believe, which was the, um, the Swallowing in Older Adults. And there were yeah. about 11 different presentations. And, and people could go in for, what was it, two or three weeks, and they can select the, the, the talks they wanted to hear and get CEUs for them. That was incredibly well received, and again, you had you had people that are seeing patients presenting and talking about the evidence and the research. So maybe more of that, and and I think I I uh, I've also been been looking at people complain that they can't get the research articles. I I know Asha has tried to make things a little easier. Is is there yet an easier way to do that? Right. Yeah. And I know I know several colleagues are trying to do the whole public access and making that easier. But but I think I may not have all the solutions, but if if we have an idea of some of the things that we really need, I'm sure that with a good board of directors, there might be enough people that would be willing to start looking at some of these solutions. Yeah. And really be effective. And I think that's what's so important about your platform is almost this inclusion concept. You know, it's I I run a successful business, but I don't know half the stuff that some of my people do for me because that's their genius zones. Correct. You know, but I bring them on to do that work for me because it's important work. Correct. And I think that's really what Asha needs is to embrace more of us and not just have this. It seems like, like I said before, this little cluster of researchers that are making all these decisions and not consulting anybody that's really truly in the trenches. And I think collectively, we have some incredible ideas of how we can improve this field. But like I said, we're just not getting that chance to sit at the table and express them. So right, right. What is what is concerning sometimes is that the research in dysphagia 
is usually so clinically focused and clinically relevant that it surprises me. You know, it's not like when when I was in graduate school and I had to read about, you know, lower labial range of motion for the production of some phoneme. And I thought, okay, that's really great. How is that going to apply to motor speech and my working with a patient, right? But so much of the research in dysphagia is, you know, is material that we can read and apply tomorrow. Yep. And so how do we make that more accessible? And, and I'm happy that there are several colleagues that have been doing that and trying to make it more accessible and using Facebook and platforms like podcasts, for example, yeah. that I think are good. What do you think can be done at the foundational level, Luis? I, th- I think that's a, a huge issue too. You know, I know there's a local university here that dysphagia is part of a larger med SLP course and there's o- they only get four classes. And I don't mean like an entire semester. I mean, four classes amongst the 16 classes throughout the semester, you know, so you can't learn possibly (sighs) even remotely 1% of what we need to know in dysphagia. So, you know, what's, what's difficult is a graduate student in an academic program isn't always clear of, I want to work with children. I want to work with adults. Right. Right. And then some other programs have done things like you know, they'll have the more educational track and the more medical track. I'm a little concerned about that, which which is interesting because, you know, I'm teaching in in one of the four medical SLP graduate programs. Yeah, yeah. Because I I think that what we are teaching here in, in this medical SLP program is actually what every program should be teaching right? And, and mind you, 50% of our graduates go to work in the schools. Of, of the medical track ones go work yeah, in the they're schools? All, because it's a whole, oh, goodness. The whole, oh. the whole program is, it's a medical speech pathology program. It's five semesters, you know, back to back. And so yeah, 50% go work in the schools, which I think is fantastic, right? Because who, who then works with the medically fragile kids, with the kids that have multiple handicaps, et cetera. So, so that is quite, quite important to me that, that, I personally feel we need to stop distinguishing this educational versus medical because I'm sorry, the eight-year-old that has a motor speech problem and is being seen by a clinician in the school needs a clinician that knows the cranial nerves, that knows about motor speech, just as if that eight-year-old were getting services at the private practice or the hospital clinic down the block, right? Because we have the same credentials, MS, MA, or MED, CCC, SLP. So we should have that same foundation in neuroscience and, and really understanding how you know this all works, just like we need that in language and cognition and other areas in children and adults. So what can the universities do? Well, that's one start. The, the other thing is universities are starting to do a better job at hiring doctoral level faculty that specialize in dysphagia. The problem is many of those colleagues have difficulties then doing their research because it's patient-based, right? Yeah. And the yeah. patients that we're all concerned about aren't the ones that usually just walk into our university clinics. Right. So does the university support and have a collaborative relationship with a nearby medical center, right? Or skilled nursing facility, et cetera. And so that takes a little extra work and sometimes ties into some of the difficulties with obtaining tenure, for example. So how do we do that? And how do we monitor that what's being taught in courses, right? So many times we have expert clinicians that are adjuncts teaching the dysphagia course. And so how do we ensure that what's being presented is really the latest that it that's, isn't that's my biggest information beef. <laughs> from 10 years ago, right? Yeah. Because yeah. really, the way that I do a clinical swallow exam today is not the way I did it two or three years ago because yeah. I'm smarter now, right? Right. So, so I think those are, those are relevant things to look I think about. that's starting point number one. I mean, yeah. I just, it just drives me up the wall to hear students now that are like, oh, my, my instructor said we don't need to learn about fees or MBS. They're not important. And you can just palpate the swallow. And that's how you know if they have decreased laryngeal elevation. And I'm like, that's when I just want to bash my head against the wall. So <laughs> yes, yes, or palpate, yeah. palpate the dry swallow. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. and how clinically relevant is that? Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. So yes. well, great. Yeah. So, so the university, I, I think there are things and I think there's some goodwill. There's only so much CAA can do. I think we've been going. So 
so what's interesting is here I am, I, I, I'm talking about representation, part of, of two groups where we really have a lot of work to do. And one is with the whole dysphagia and, and, our, and the whole medical aspect of what we do, which is really, you know, I, I think of it again, how do we integrate that science throughout the, the curriculum? So we shouldn't just hear about cranial nerves in the dysphagia course and maybe in yeah, the Yeah, I think that's course, such a good right? point. We should hear yeah, about cranial yeah. nerves all over, right? Yeah. Language development, where does it come from? Oh yeah, from the brain, the developing brain, right? It's a de developmental model. Okay, so maybe I'm oversimplifying that, but you get the idea. But completely, the other, yeah. The other aspect is then, you know, bilingualism and multiculturalism. And again, at the beginning of of this podcast, I mentioned, you know, right now in this country, we're almost forty percent, you know, people of color, many of whom are bilingual speak other languages. And so are we misdiagnosing these kids because, because we're assuming that they're going to be as good as, let's say, a monolingual English speaker, because those are the tests we have available. How do we develop then the strategies that so far have been, have shown good evidence for least biased assessment, right? So that we stop misdiagnosing, we're providing it, and this is for everybody, even the monolingual English speakers, right? So, so there's still a, a lot to be done if we're going to integrate into what I call the real world. Yeah, I, I think that's so important too. I mean, even in nursing homes, you know, it's like, well, I'll get a patient that's a complete, you know, Chinese. I had a, a man that was complete Chinese speaker and, you know, couldn't obviously follow the assessment. Well, you know, no crap, he couldn't follow the assessment. But you know, the law says that there, you know, you need to bring a translator in mm -hmm. and the facilities will push back. Like, we're not going to afford that. We're not going to pay for that, but it's a law, you know? So how do we learn these things as speech pathologists so we can advocate to our facilities that it's not just something I want to do for this patient to be nice. It's a law that right. these patients deserve equal, right. equal assessments. Yeah. yeah. Working with interpreters is a big area that I think we should all be comfortable with. Yeah, because we're we're using them more and more, and, and have to because we can't speak all the languages, and certainly right. our professions don't represent all the languages that are spoken in, in this country. And and the other thing you mentioned, you know, in the skilled nursing facility, you know, how many skilled nursing facilities have a good hearing screening program? How many of these and, folks are yeah. being misdiagnosed by psychology, by speech pathology, by occupational therapy as really cognitively impaired and maybe even getting lower scores because of a hearing problem, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of fun work to, to still be done. Yeah. I, I love what you said that, you know, all of speech pathology, whether it's medical or schools, needs to have this foundation in neuroscience. And you know, I, I had a discussion with someone on one of the Facebook groups this weekend, and she's like, well, I only want to work in the schools. I only want to work with kids. I never would have gotten into this field had I had to take a neuro class or had I had to take a, a bio class. And my head was just spinning thinking about that, because as you said, it's all underlying neurology. You know, we, yep. we all need to step up our game and knowing that stuff. And, you know, luckily, I've sought out my own education in that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th yeah. I think that's I think that's so true, not just for medical, but for for working with peds, too. Right. But, and, and it's scary to hear. And, and sometimes we, we wonder and this has been discussion, you know, I've had with different groups is even those that are practicing in the healthcare field, not really being up to par with, you know, the latest in, in, in neurology and neuroscience not knowing their cranial nerves, not understanding the role of some medications, even with, with populations they work with often. What is your, your, uh, the person with Parkinson's that you're working with taking? Uh, what's the person with Mycenae gravis taking? We need to understand that. We need to understand yeah. neurotransmitters. We need, you know, we need to have a good conversation with the neurologist when there are changes. Yeah. So how do we facilitate some of that? And, 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 and again, I, I think how do we make some of those avenues available because it's up to us to fill the gaps. We can't let our graduate programs be responsible for everything. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it, it's, we're almost in this double-edged sword space now where, you know, we need to make some changes at the foundational grad programs, but then there also are those of us that have been on the field for 10, 20 years. And how do, how do we now go back and fill those gaps? Correct. So, you know, I think there, there is really this huge surge in the last year or two of clinicians really wanting to better themselves. But how do we go about that? You know, where do we go to get this, 
where do we go to take a further neurology class, something like that. So I, I, I think that's really worth investigating as well. We, we also have another, another big responsibility, Teresa, and it's many hospitals and healthcare centers are not accepting graduate students for externship. Yes. Yep. And they're not hiring clinical fellows. Yep. That is extremely frustrating to me. And so I, I was very frank, and, and I'll use this as an example, a colleague about three years ago called me and said, you know, I'm very frustrated. I've, I've had a position open for a, a clinician for the NICU, a speech pathologist for the NICU for about nine months, and I can't get anybody. And my response, because I tend to be very frank, was, well, good for you. I'm glad that's happening. And she was surprised and said, Luis, why are you saying that to me? And I said, because you don't take graduate students and you don't hire clinical fellows. So how are we supposed to further this specialization, right? Because it's not just pediatric feeding swallowing. The NICU is a whole other specialty area. Yes, 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 yes. And so how are we supposed to further that if you're not part of the solution, right? And how are, if there are academic programs with this interest or students with this interest, how do they develop that if they don't have an open door somewhere where they're going to see real children, real babies, and supervised by an experienced clinician. Yeah. So some of that has changed a little bit, but I mean, I'm in New York City. We have, oh, just a few hospitals, right? <laughs> and it's incredible how many either won't take students or might take them once a year. And then when they do, there's limited exposure. And you know what? In our practice, I think if the student's interested then I want to expose the student to as much as possible because it'll help them figure out what they really want and also really push them in directions maybe they didn't know, you know, would be of interest. Yeah. So, and most of our team, I think all but two have done their clinical fellowship with us because I believe in that, you know, grab the yeah. clinical fellow and you can mold them and, <laughs> you know, provide them with some good experience and then hopefully keep them. And I, I know speaking from the clinical side, it's it's really twofold. I, I know so many of these facilities now, it's, it's just a productivity thing. They don't want the clinician to have to take time out of their productive day to teach the student. Correct. And whether that's right or wrong, it's wrong. Well, completely, I'm, back, but... I'm back to teamwork. <laughs> yeah, I'm back yeah, to teamwork yeah. because yeah. what we do in our group is when you've got one main supervisor right? It doesn't mean that the student's going to be supervised only by that person. Somebody yeah, else might yeah. have an interesting patient or they just got a consult from the ICU. Oh, do you want to come and they'll grab the student? The other thing is if that's the main, if you have a main supervisor and they're going to be busy with the student, the others on the team might take over some of the cases that that person was going to see that day, you know, for on the inpatient side that works. And so we've got to work as a team. So even though clinician A is the one that's the primary supervisor, it doesn't mean clinicians B and C aren't going to also have some of that load by either helping supervise the student or taking on some of the cases that clinician A can't see. Yeah, I love that. And I know I have a few colleagues now that are almost like sharing students, like they'll go out and do the the outpatient fees or, you know, that then do a few days inpatient and the, the student will follow, you know, some Monday, Wednesday, Friday, some Tuesday, Thursday. So exactly. I, I love that. It's great. And I know, you know, in our area, there's a university now that they won't take students from this university anymore because they are so poorly trained. And, and that's horrible because obviously these students need this experience. And what's even worse is they're not getting these, the experience, but yet they're able to get a job because facilities need a warm body. So I, that's where I get so hung up is like, yes, it stinks that this person didn't get a good foundational education, but I, I don't know what the answer is to getting them up to speed, knowing that they're going to go take a job and do this anyways, right. you know? So Teresa, we didn't plan this, but that's a great segue into, in, into saying that, that again, because of, of good collaboration, we, we are actually just as of last week, have a tool available to us. So some years back, Lynn Brady-Wagner, who was coordinator for SIG-13, and I was then chair of the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders, we had a chat and we said, you know, how, you know, and she's, she's at a hospital, you know, I'm running a, a program as well. 
how are we measuring competencies in dysphagia, right? And how are we, uh, how do we, you know, differentiate the entry-level clinician versus the more seasoned clinician. And we both laughed because it turns out she was struggling with that. And, and so was I, because I have people that are, you know, very well-seasoned. And I thought sometimes when we go to review their competencies, I'm thinking, well, of course, you've been meeting these for the past five years. You know, how do we step it up? You know, aside from other, you know, engaging in other projects and performance improvement stuff, I'm talking about the dysphagia expertise. And so it took us about a year and a half to get approval from ASHA, but we formed this joint committee between SIG-13 and the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders. The the issue with ASHA was really that the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders is not a committee or or a board of ASHA, right? We're separate. It's a separate body. So once ABSSD agreed, you know, that ABSSD would pay for the hotel and expenses of whatever to be a part of this committee, then everything was, was taken care of and transparent. Wow. Six of us got together. We started uh, Julie Blair and Claire Miller were the co-chairs. And I have to mention their names because they've just done an incredible job as our co-chairs. And we had conference calls and meetings and we had one face-to-face and the tool has been peer-reviewed. And so it's incredible. It's it's a fancy Excel spreadsheet, basically, is the way I look at it, right? So we have, you know, one page is our dysphagia competencies, another one is for MBS, another one is for fees, and another one is for advanced practice, okay? Incredible. Look for it. It's in the practice portal. Okay. It's available now? Yes. As of last okay. week, okay. I heard there was I, a, a okay. little bit of a problem with the link. Okay. But, but I had heard it was coming, but I didn't know it was officially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we put in, we put in, uh, we'll see if it's approved for a presentation at the upcoming ASHA convention to really talk about the tool and the use, because that's the idea. Because a lot of people are also telling us that, well, my boss isn't a speech pathologist, right? right. My boss, right. the director of rehab is a physical therapist or an occupational therapist. So, right. so this tool will work nicely for that. So we can show our fabulousness in a really concrete way. Excellent. I think that's great. All right. So let's, let's switch gears. I want to talk about my soapbox issues, Luis. Um, (laughs) Uh, Yes. (laughs) What, how do you feel we tackle this huge beast of no one wants to pay for instrumentation or the studies aren't worth the paper that it's written on? How do we get people up to speed and on board with we need fees, we need video fluoroscopy to treat these patients effectively. Okay, so we have, we, we have a, a, a few colleagues you know, out there on the bandwagon of we need to understand the physiology, which I, I often smile at because I'm thinking, okay, how could I practice in the area of dysphagia if I don't understand the physiology, right? You'd be surprised, yes. Yes. Now, here's, here's what, I, what I will tell you very honestly that, that I think you know, we're, we're lacking because it's a question that, that came up in, in our practice some years back. So up until around 2010, our team also covered nine skilled nursing facilities. Okay. And towards the end of that time, we, we had started to question why are there some people that we're seeing in the skilled nursing facility who we refer for a video fluoroscopy, which was what we were referring at the time more for than for endoscopy. And why are there some people that we think we can manage without the instrumental exam? Okay. And, and who then had good outcomes, right? And we know they're more, you know, chronically ill and there are other issues going on. But we always felt we need to go back and look at our clinical swallow evaluations and our documentation to see what was how were we making that decision? We don't have a clear picture on who we do an instrumental on and who we don't. In acute care, we don't have much either. And there are, there are some hospital practices where they'll do an instrumental on 90% of their swallow referrals, others 50%. You know, we vary depending on you know the case mix, right? So we don't do yeah. an instrumental on everybody. But then also another area we don't have good data on is when is the right time to do an instrumental? Okay, right. I get very frustrated when when I, I review somebody's history and I see that you know they had a stroke and they had an instrumental on day two post-stroke. 
why. We have data out there that says that first week, there's going to be a lot of improvement. And so instead of that, you know, 60 to 70% of folks with dysphagia immediately post-stroke, a week later, that's down to like 30 and under, depending on who you read and how they define dysphagia, right? Because there are some research articles defining dysphagia just as aspiration or no aspiration, which is, you know, incomplete for sure. So I think that adds to that, right? Yep. We, we don't have a clear picture. We don't have that black and white of when do we refer. I think as practicing clinicians, we have ideas, but we don't have that hard data. And that might be making it difficult for especially the, the young clinicians practicing now. Yeah. I, like I know ex- if we use the same example, I know what stinks, you know, in the settings that I work in is we'll get, you know, the patient will be transferred from acute care to a sniff they'll get the the video fluoroscopy report that says, oh, you know, recommended NPO because this was done two days post-stroke. And so then the SLP will say, well, they're supposed to be NPO. They failed the swallow study. And it just ends there. You know, where this is really the rehab setting where we need an updated instrumental to see, do they still even need, you know, what is going on? Do they still even have dysphagia? So I, I think that's where I wish ASHA would step in and give more guidance and have more of a position statement of what really instrumentals can do for us clinically. So do you think that a position statement or revisions of some of the documents we have? Because my understanding is that ASHA's kind of moving away from some of those position statements because yeah, it could be then I think that's a major problem. Yeah. So maybe moving more towards, you know, guidelines and maybe they're putting together a group of, of experts to try to start figuring that. Yep. I think another way and and what's been interesting now now remember that for many years funding, whether it was through the ASHA Foundation or other other funding mechanisms within the association, swallowing was like the dark cloud, right? And so we really owe a lot to Jerry Logeman and a few other pioneers um, who fought really, really hard, where now it's like no big deal that, you know, this swallowing study was funded by the foundation or, or by other things. And so there are lots of great people that have been involved in making that happen. So but maybe looking at some of those mechanisms so that we can facilitate some of that some of that work but again we need that engagement between the clinician and the researcher right because yeah. what i hear yeah. from clinicians is i have no interest in research but i want the results to guide my practice right yeah. and i have no time okay understandable well would you be willing to partner with a researcher and then learn from each other right yeah because the researcher with a PhD doesn't necessarily have clinical experience. You know, many right. of us do, but there are some that don't, right? And so, right. and again, we all practice in different areas. So we're all at the same level, right? And you know your setting, you know, better than I know your setting. So, right. so how do we facilitate some of those partnerships as well so that they could yeah. access to some of that data? Yeah, I, I think it's it, it grinds my gears because we essentially are all on the same team. We're all working towards the greater good, you know, and, and why aren't we working together more? So, right. you know, I think going back to your, um, you know, ASHA position statement or guidelines thing, the issue that I've run into is that, you know, I'll, I'll have meetings with administrators or medical directors and they'll say, you know, well, why why should we be ordering more fees or why should we be ordering more video fluoroscopy? What is what does ASHA say? And I used to be able to hand them this knowledge and skills form that ASHA had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They got rid of it last year. And I spoke at at ASHA, the convention last year. I said, where did this paper, where did this go? Because right. I used to link it and send it out to everybody. And they said, well, the committee met and decided that it wasn't really being used anymore. So they got rid of it. And I said, was was there any sort of clinician on this committee? Because we use like clinicians use this paper a lot, right. you know, and they said, well, we didn't we didn't realize that administrators or medical directors were looking for this information. You know, they are we bring we try to advocate to them, but they want something concrete to support these decisions. And that's why it would be nice to have ASHA to say, you know, of, of course, instrumentals aren't necessary for every single patient, but we do need these. So I'll, I'll share two thoughts on on that, you know. One is this highlights the importance of voting in the ASHA elections because we need to understand that 
the people that sit on the board of directors are the ones making decisions. And so this is our opportunity to elect people that we believe are going to represent us. And I'm sorry, I'm using my campaign slogan here. I love it. Keep, no, keep using it, Luis. Unintentional. <laughs> but, but, you know, from looking at the different vice presidents, the president's office, et cetera, we, we need to make sure that we have, we have friendly folks, as I call them, you know, sitting and representing us. The, the other thought also is, and, uh, and, and this is my, my personal concern, is when the SIGs were restructured, we lost a lot of opportunities to, to really bring in new volunteers, but also lost the flexibility of the SIGs managing their budgets and being able to start committees on their own. Now, Every SIG has the same committees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, I mean, if you look at the history of SIG 13, there were so many documents and, and, and opinion papers and so on that, that were generated through task forces and, and, and committees of SIG 13. The SIGs don't have that leeway anymore, right? And so I, I think that's hindered some of our movement forward. So what you're saying, right. yes, right. if you're arguing with your administrator, how do we have some of that, some of that information available? I I'll share with you an, another yeah. project I've yeah. been in, involved in. And, and again, it's, it's who we have in certain positions and how we get it done, right? So a few years ago, I've been very frustrated with the fact that there are still many hospitals that have way too few speech pathologists. We don't have good data on productivity. We don't have good clean cut data on our impact in acute care. Now, mind you, in acute care is the only setting where there isn't direct reimbursement for speech language pathology, right? There is in rehab, there is in home care, there's, you know, private practice. And so how you know, how can I go to an administrator and say, we need more people because look at the impact we have on length of stay. Look at the money we're saving you because we're getting people to eat by mouth sooner. We're preventing readmissions, et cetera. So that the data. What was really interesting in working with Carmen Vega Barakowitz from Mass General, Nancy Swigert, who was then at Baptist yeah. Health in Kentucky, and a few others that were, that were on this Initially, informal committee, we contacted the healthcare division at ASHA, and then at that point, we had Vice President Gail Richards, who who was listening. And so, we never had a budget, or we weren't a real committee. We were this make believe committee, but we got the attention of the board of directors and some of the folks at the national office. Rob Mullen got involved with with NOMS and evidence based practice. We presented at ASHA. We presented at one of the healthcare conferences. And what was interesting is what we learned from the audience was, well, different hospitals have different cultures, right? So, so what the administrator at your hospital needs to be convinced about your effectiveness might not be what the administrator at my hospital needs, right? So my thinking is, where can we gather information? And many of us have performance improvement projects with data, et cetera. Yes, where yes. could we deposit yep. that information that's accessible so that if you're running a program or if you want to expand, et cetera, you can go see what data is out there that might be relevant for you. So we're kind of still working on figuring that out. Maybe the practice portal, maybe not but then we also need to make the practice portal way more accessible. I think it's still difficult to get to. I love that so much, Luis. I, I love what you said, because I, I mean, that's what I do constantly when, when helping, you know, I help people set up fees practices and I, you know, try to get mobile fees in a lot of facilities and I'm constantly, you know, some of these facilities, it is all about the bottom line. So I have to present them the dollars and cents for other facilities. It's 100% patient care. So I have to come at it from that angle. That's so, right. you know, I feel like I'm constantly just spitting out the same information. So it would be totally wonderful to everybody in the field to have access to that information. Sure. So I think that's great. Yeah. I, I think the practice portal is wonderful. It's come a long way, but I completely agree that it's could be a little easier. <laughs> so anything else you want to cover? Well, let's see. I think so. So some people are asking, you asked at the beginning kind of, you know, what, why do you think you can do this? Yes. 
You know, why do you think you could be president of Asha? Same reason I thought I could start this podcast. <laughs> there you go. And look how look how popular. I mean, people, you know, you say your name and people are like, oh, she's got that great podcast. So, so again, you know, I spoke about the representation piece, but, you know, I, I think a, a big issue here is, you know, I, I believe that, that as a leader, I'm not the one that's going to do it all. Right. And so as a leader, I, I just want to be able to facilitate some of the change. Right. So and if we're listening, right, then we can start looking at, OK, how can we start looking at change? And I, and I think that was one of the things that got me excited about Asha's strategic plan, because if you look at the pillars and if you look at the objectives, Many of the objectives touch many of us in our practices. Mm-hmm. And so there are opportunities there then to be heard and tying it in with that strategic plan to keep moving our professions forward. And then also helping with globalization. I think, you know, there's a lot that we need to learn here and we need to let the world know that we don't know it all. But again, if we can touch base with folks in other parts of the world and see what they're doing, instead of us going in and being very US centric and saying, look, I'm from the US, I know it all. But going in and saying, what are you doing? Let's talk about this. And then bringing some of that back home. Who knows, that might facilitate even more change. And we might have some healthier folks out there not developing pneumonias or not being malnourished or dehydrated or not being on feeding tubes or thickened liquids. I agree. Awesome. There you go. Well, that's this has been wonderful, Luis. Well, thank you for the opportunity. You are so welcome. Thank you for jumping on it. Really chat with my colleagues uh, that practice in the area of dysphagia, where my passion yes. is. Of course, please share with your non-dysphagia colleagues that I hope to also represent them because of the many other hats I wear. And again, it's all based on being able to listen and being interested in moving our professions forward. I know there are issues in audiology as well that we need to address. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Luis. This has been wonderful. Thank you very much. And keep doing all this great work and spreading a good word. Why, thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.